So I have an interesting question for you. Why is it when we hire amazingly talented people into our organization that, yes, we do have to onboard them, but we don't give them challenging assignments until they pay their dues, learn the business, have to put in their time? And yes, I know. I know, I'm a realist. People must learn the business, put their time in to get to understand ways of working in order to ultimately be successful. I mean, that's why you hire talented people to make an impact on your business. However, why do we wait so long to give them the challenging assignments? We expect them to hit the ground running because time is money and business is changing fast. So I ask you, Why don't we give the new talent in an organization the challenging assignments and let them be leaders now versus wasting time and being leaders down the road? I'm just asking you to think about it and ask yourself hard, why do we do things that way or is there a better way of doing it? And so my conversation with John Rennie really enlightened that insight. There are leaders all over the place. There is wasted talent if we don't leverage it now for the work we need done today. So think about it. Why not put people in challenging positions and leadership roles as early as possible? Now, let's listen to this amazing conversation. We tend to give the tough assignments to the experienced individuals and we give the mundane work to the newer employees. And so you tend to get these people where, you know, they've worked their whole lives, whether it's, you know, advanced degrees and and training, whatever, to get to your companies. They've worked hard to get into your company in the front door. And then we give them, you know, four to five years of doing grunt work versus giving them the opportunities to really shine. So one is... I'm always interested in in newer employees that come to the company and giving them some challenging opportunities. That's one area. The second area is there are leaders outside of work. They are leading a Boy Scout troop. They are a Sunday school teacher. They are volunteer at the YMCA. You'll find that almost everyone that works for you is a leader in some way, shape, or form outside of work. So why can't they be a leader inside of work? Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of The Drop-In CEO, and I am grateful that you have joined us for another episode of The Drop-In CEO podcast, where week after week, I get to speak to amazing leaders, share their insights with you, and hopefully inspire you. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share with others so we can continue to bring you amazing program. And now I am honored to share the mic with my amazing guest, John Rennie. John is a business leader, best-selling author, speaker, and podcaster. And by the way, I've had the honor of being on his show as well. He is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Peak Demand Inc., a manufacturer of critical components for electrical utilities. He is a former U.S. Navy nuclear submarine officer 
who made seven deployments during the end of the Cold War. And prior to starting Peak Demand, he led eight manufacturing businesses for three global companies. And he's the author of three best-selling leadership books, I Have the Watch, All in the Same Boat, and You Have the Watch. And he is the host of the Deep Leadership Podcast. And there is so much to go on about his background. But honestly, I just want to bring him onto the show. Welcome, John, to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. Thanks, Deb. It's good to be here. All right. And for our listeners, oh my, we could go on and on, John and I. He just interviewed me a week ago, so that'll be coming out shortly. I feel like we are in the same boat together where we see so many opportunities to elevate leaders. And not only what should leaders be doing about the future leaders, but actionable tips for that aspiring leader and what they can do to be seen, heard, and respected. He's got so much content. But John, I'm going to let you take it away, share a bit about your story and how you arrived at the work that you're doing now. Yeah, thanks, Deb. I achieved my life's dream at a young age, and rarely people do that. But even before high school, I dreamed of being a naval officer on a nuclear submarine. And I didn't know exactly how to do that, but I figured it out. One thing was get good grades in high school, go to get an engineering degree, you know, be accepted into the Navy nuclear power program. And then once you get to the fleet, it's you spend about a year to get fully qualified. But I did that, and it was a long journey. I was able to achieve my dreams at a young age. And was able to be a naval officer on the USS Tennessee. I served for five years during the end of the Cold War. I got to see sort of everything sort of wrap up. Cold War ended, we wrapped up, and then I decided to get out and went to work for a global company at the time. I started off as a design engineer for a large global company, and I was really lost. I didn't know really what I wanted to do when I grew up because I already did it, you know, so I had already achieved my dreams at such a young age. So what do you do next? What do you do for an encore? And it took me about five years before I realized my next passion, if you will. And that was, I I got a chance to run a manufacturing plant at 32 years old. I was very young and it was a very interesting transition coming into running a manufacturing plant at such a young age. I was the youngest plant manager in that plant's history and that had been around about 40 years. But it wasn't until my second plant that I realized that I loved, absolutely loved being a part of a manufacturing operation, especially one that was in trouble that needed to be turned around. I really loved, I loved the blue collar workers. I loved shop floor workers. I just loved being around and motivating people and seeing them light up and realize that their leader cared, that they wanted the best for them, and they really needed them to be involved in the turnaround process. So I ended up becoming sort of the turnaround guy. So I traveled to multiple different manufacturing plants over my career to turn around businesses that were struggling and turn around and make them profitable again. And and I always did it for the worker, for the person that was working there. And I always believed that there has to be a good leader come in and motivate and excite a team and get them driven towards an objective. And there's no such thing as bad teams. It's always bad leaders. And that's something that Jocko Willing says, and I truly believe in that. There's no such thing as a bad team. It's just bad leadership. And I like to be that leader that kind of just fires up the team and gets them excited and moving towards a common direction. So really, I realized that second passion in my career, probably about five years or so after I left the military, but it took me a little bit of, a little bit of time to figure that out. So it's an amazing story. And I'm smiling here as you're sharing it, because I too fell in love with manufacturing at the end of college and realized that I truly enjoy not only making something out of nothing but also being able to solve problems, improve quality. Again, operations, operational excellence, quality, we're in the same family together and truly doing it through people because we can only do so much based on our expertise. But when you gain the trust of the people, they 
see you as a leader because you respected them. And in turn, they'll take care of you. But such an amazing thing. And we're both engineers too. I noticed you went to WPI. Yeah. So engineer turned manufacturer turned leadership development expert. So it's amazing. But I want to turn back the clock a little bit because you talk about in your book, I have the watch and about being at in a significant position at an early age, 32, you were put into, what was that? A plant manager, ops manager role? It was the plant manager role. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there are so many people in my network that said, oh, I can't do that. I don't, yes. Okay. You've been, <laughs> been in a submarine. That's pretty complex, pretty, pretty tense. But what was it about you that says, okay, I can do this. I'm, I've been in this position before I can do it. Or if you weren't sure you could do it, but you were up for the challenge, what was that moment like? Because there are so many talented people in my network that say, oh, I can't do that. I've never done that, but I'm not ready. And, and think that they have to dot all the I's and cross the T's in order to have that position of responsibility. What was it like for you? Yeah, I, I would say I'm a little bit lucky in that I had a very similar experience in the Navy. So when I first got to the USS Tennessee, I was very young. I was fresh out of college. I had a year of year and three months of Navy training after college. And they sent me to the fleet saying that I was ready to lead. And I remember when I first showed up to the Tennessee, she was in dry dock. Have you ever seen a Ohio-class submarine out of the water? It's massive. And it's very intimidating. And I came around the corner in the dry dock where the Tennessee was um, with my sea bag on my shoulder. And I realized that all of my training, all my preparation, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for this role. I was way bigger than me. And then when I met my team for the first time, I saw I, I get on board, I throw my sea bag on my rack. I have another officer take me to the back to, for me to meet my team. And I had the young people in charge of the reactor controls department. So this is these are the people that maintain and operate the most complex equipment that monitors the nuclear reactor. And I look around the team and I realize that my senior enlisted, so my sort of next in command to me, has been in the Navy about as many years as I've been alive, right? And then I look around the rest of the team and everybody had made multiple patrols. They were fully qualified. I realized that I was the liability in the group. I was the least experienced and the least qualified in this team of people. And it's a hard position to be in. And a lot of young people find themselves in those roles where they're, they're people that working for them that are more experienced and more knowledgeable and older. And so how do you lead? And so I had that early experience in my early career of having that opportunity of leading people that are older and more experienced than me. And, you know, it kind of comes down to, you know, being humble, listening, asking good questions, being present, you know, observing, you know, taking notes, and then do the things that only the leader can do. So in that role, even though I was young, there were certain things that only I could do. And I made sure I did, did those things very well. And over time, earned the respect of my team. But I didn't come in there saying, you know, I'm at this point, I was an ensign, which is the lowest ranking officer in the Navy. I didn't come in and say, I'm Ensign Rennie and I'm in charge. It was more like, hey, guys, what do we do here? <laughs> you know, so it's more of like being curious. And I think that prepared me well for that situation at 32 years old, getting put in charge of a plant or where I had many employees that had been at that plant the same number of years I'd been alive. So I was in the same, same situation. And it was interesting. I came into that role thinking I had to have all the answers. So I was, the, I was thinking the guy in the corner office had to have all the answers that I needed to be an expert in, in everything in that manufacturing plant. So I was very intimidating in the early, early stages because I thought, well, I don't know everything and I've got you know, I've, I've to learn. And I've got to make sure that I sound like I know what I'm doing. But 
I think it was probably over about a year at that plant, I realized that I didn't need to have all the answers, that all the answers were in the minds of the people that have been there. My job was simply to engage them, listen to them, get the best ideas, and get the people involved. And then I realized all the answers to all our problems resided in the minds of our employees. And so learning how to capitalize on that became fun. I was like, oh, I don't have to have all the answers. I just really need to tap into all this knowledge and wisdom that's in the shop. And I think that's when I found that magic and we started you know, improving that operation and turning that operation around and, and becoming, we ended up being, after three years, we ended up being runner up for manufacturer of the year for the state of South Carolina. We didn't quite win. I wanted to win it, but it was just really cool. We did a really major plant turnaround in there and just we had a great morale at that plant after three years where everybody's really engaged and excited and kind of all rowing in the same direction, I guess I would say. And, and that was kind of a fun, it was a fun first time I'd ever done something like that. So what I really love about this story is that it, I would say, potentially builds confidence in the people that are not sure that they're ready for the next role. But just know that you can find the answers. And what really resonates with me is that you put together a resource that I think is so powerful for aspiring leaders to realize they don't have to know everything, but here are some actionable things you can do to either prepare yourself for that leadership role or what to do in the first hundred days. And I will say, and again, anybody listening to this, I'm going to plug this, mind you, he's a prolific author. He's got three books out, but he has also written the new leader guide, 10 steps to making a lasting impact in the first hundred days. I read through it and I said, oh my, where was this when I was up and coming? But oh my, it's so easy and practical. One particular chapter was about being present, what's working well, asking just really simple questions about what's working well, what needs to be addressed. And if they were in my shoes, what would I do first? I love those actionable tips. But curious, what inspired you to write this guide? Because if you're listening to this and you need some tips on how to be a great leader in those first hundred days, you got to download this resource. What was the inspiration for this? Well, I've done it so many times. So, you know, it's funny. Not many people have done what I've done, you know, as far as having... The, so my business now that I operate, I've been running for yeah six years now. I've run nine different manufacturing plants over my career. And not only that, you know, I had the military experience as well. So I've had a chance to come in as the new guy many times. And so I kind of developed my own process or system, if you will, to what should you do in that first 100 days? Every eye is on you in those first 100 days. You can make magic happen if you make sure that you capitalize on that first 100 days. Because one of the things I say is I do something dramatic that gets the rumor mill going. I, I love doing this. It's like... One of the things you recognize is maybe because I'm in the military, but also manufacturing guys, that the rumor mill is powerful. And so how do I, how do I get on the rumor mill? And so one of the things I do is I do one big thing that's a bit crazy that gets everybody talking. So one example of one time I took over a manufacturing plant and I noticed there was reserved parking spots for plant manager, supply manager. Everybody had reserved parking spots by the front door. And I walk in there and I, I meet my, who's going to soon, soon to be my assistant. And I asked her, I said, who is the maintenance manager? And they said, oh, this gentleman. I said, well, bring him out into the parking lot. I want to meet with him. I said, I kept him out here. I said, and they, the names were on like the concrete parking stops, you know, the, the titles. And I said, I want you to come out here with a bucket of paint. I want you to paint over every one of those parking areas. I said, no reserved parking in my plant so long as I'm here. And that's all I said. And then I went about to my normal meet the team and all this sort of thing. 
But you know that rumor mill got started is that maintenance manager told him and told a few other people. And it's like Rennie painted over the reserve parking, no more reserve parking on his watch. And again, it's a simple thing that you can do to get everybody talking. It also demonstrates who you are as a leader and what what values are important to you. So find one thing that you can that you can do that's a little bit kind of off the wall and crazy so that people will be talking about it. So you get the buzz going in those early in the early five minutes when I show up. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that you can do if you're if you can find those opportunities. So amazing. And I'm not as crazy as that, but I mean, I think you could just do small things that are different that goes against the status quo. As long as it's safe, doesn't impact anybody in a negative way, just do something different, good or bad, at least you're memorable in those first hundred days. So your book, and we're going to get into all of your works, but the book that you that I really enjoyed was I Have the Watch. You have a particular chapter in there about recognizing and developing new leaders. Now, I would love for you to respond to my question from the perspective of the senior leader that has people in their care. I know it is on us to recognize talent and that we should develop them as the future leaders. But I'm also curious about the people that don't shine, that are not loud, that are loyal, they do their job, but they also could be leaders. What is the responsibility or your position as a leader to develop talent, not just the obvious ones, but perhaps the ones that are less obvious. What's your experience there? Because I believe everybody can be a high performer, but what's your take? So I would say two things. One is we tend to, at least in big companies, I noticed this, is that we give the the tough assignments to the experienced individuals and we give the mundane work to the newer employees. And so you tend to get these people where you know, they've worked their whole lives, whether it's, you know, advanced degrees and, and training, whatever, to get to your companies. They've worked hard to get into your company in the front door. And then we give them, you know, four to five years of doing grunt work versus giving them the opportunities to really shine. So one is I'm always interested in, in newer employees that come to the company and, and giving them some opportunities to not uh, challenging opportunities. That's one area. The second area is I would say this is that everybody in our factories, everyone in our businesses, everyone in our call centers, everyone in our schools, everyone in our firehouses, our police department, there are leaders outside of work. They are leading a Boy Scout troop. They are a Sunday school teacher. They are volunteer at the YMCA. You, you name it. You, you find where they're passionate. Are. You'll find that almost everyone in, that works for you is a leader in some way, shape, or form outside of work. So why can't they be a leader inside of work? And so. This idea is giving the opportunities, you know, again, when we're turning around a plant, we, you, you know this from your, your background, we're doing a lot of lean manufacturing projects and 5S and you're cleaning up areas, you're doing value stream mapping and you're, you, you want to see those individual individuals that have got their lights on. You can see, and, and that's the way I just describe it. They're, they're excited about this. They're asking questions. They're curious about it. They're volunteering. They're stepping up. It's like, I don't even care where you come from. I don't care if you've been in the plant 20 years or you're a new employee. I'm, I see that your lights are on. and like, okay, this individual is interested in what's happening and in, in the way, the direction that we're moving. And those are the people that I want to sort of keep in the back of my mind. Okay, this, this individual has got their lights on. Maybe I give them an opportunity to lead a small project, right? So I give them a chance to, to lead with some training wheels on, you know, so it's something that they can get an opportunity to do something where I can evaluate them and they can get an opportunity to get that valuable experience of, of leading a small team doing something, whether it might be when you're with corporate, there's always some sort of project that's happening. 
that you need help with. You know, you're rolling out a new system or there's a, an employee survey that has to be done. There's always something that has to be done. And these, this is where I say, yeah, I remember Jill, she really got into that last project. And I'm going to see if, you know, I'll take her aside and say, look, I've got this opportunity. I've got a small project. I'd, I'd like for you to take the lead on it. And again, it's a great opportunity for you to learn from them and for them to get an, a, a chance leading and to see if, well, leadership is something they like and to see if they ha- actually have and can perform in those areas. So when I've done that, it's been really, really valuable for me to get a chance to learn fr- from whether that person is someone that might be able to move into a more senior position. But I do like to give those kind of assignments. You know, and again, I would say this is that one of the things in the military trained us really well is that failure is a powerful teaching tool. So they always put us in these under instruction watches. So you would you would stand watch and you had someone senior to you and you got a chance to actually do the job. But if you made a few mistakes here or there, you had a senior watch standard there that could correct you and improve you. And I think that's the same way that leadership should be. It's almost like you have to be, you know, like a master and apprentice type relationship is a better way to learn leadership than trying to watch a TED talk or read read a book or watch a video. You know, I think I think sometimes it's good to have someone there as a mentor to kind of help you as you make mistakes and you you figure it out because it does it's just like playing guitar. You can't play guitar by reading a book. You actually have to learn you have to pick up the guitar and play it. Same thing with leadership. You have to do it and realize, "Oh, this is me- this is messy or this this is hard or what what have you done in this situation?" And I think you need to have someone there to help you through that process. So, I so love all of this actionable advice for the leader that has the responsibility to find those people with the lights on. I love that expression. And the other thing that I really like is the fact that it does take time and it does require continual coaching. You can send people out to leadership training, but unless you have somebody there then monitoring your performance and then giving you positive, actionable feedback on what went well and asking questions about what could be done differently to get a different outcome, use it as a learning moment, and then you continue to evolve the leaders of tomorrow. And they'll remember you because you took the time to care about them. Now, I would like to ask a different question because a lot of the people that listen to my show are people that just want to do really well in their career. They may or may not be aspired to leadership, but many are. That if they don't have the right support system, what should they be doing now as the leaders of tomorrow to position themselves, learn, or what your best advice is so that if and when the opportunity comes around, they are seen, heard, and respected. What should they do to be the leader? Yeah, it's all about your skill stack. It's building that skill stack. And I think it's really important. So when we were in the Navy, when, when we got to the, the boat, they gave us what's called a qualification card. And what that was is you had to go around the, the ship and you had to get signatures from qualified watch standards all over the ship to prove that you were capable in all these different systems and all these different areas. So you have to understand the torpedo launch system. I had to understand what immediate actions for a reactor scram. I had to know what to do with a close contact. I, I All these things, and I had to go in front of senior people and prove that I knew what I was talking about before they signed my qual card. So when I came to the civilian world, when I came to my first corporate job, there's no qual card, right? I got, I got a cubicle, I got a stapler and a desk, <laughs> and I had to figure it out on my own. And so I took the approach when I came into my career is that I, I have to get qualified. I have to add value to this company. I want to be an invaluable asset to this company. So we had an expression in the Navy we called, when you showed up on the boat and you weren't qualified, you were a nub. 
and a nub stands for a non-useful body. Oh my God. <laughs> so there was a positive peer pressure to become useful. And so I felt that pressure, even though no one said it to me in corporate, I felt the pressure that I was a nub when I first showed up and I had to become useful and I had to become valuable. And so when I realized that there wasn't a call card, there wasn't a, a standard process in, in my company to learn everything to do my job really well, I started talking to the senior people, just like I did on the boat. I, I said, what do you do here? What should I be doing here? What, what kind of things do you do on a project? What systems do you use? What should I know in my role? And I noticed you go down to the shop floor a lot. Can you take me with you? Because I want to see what you do. I want to see who you talk to. Who's, you know, what role does, does an engineer play in, in a project? How does the quality manager interact? How's this? So I asked a lot of questions. And not only that, is that we had all employee meetings. This is corporate. So you go to these all employee meetings and there was always something to volunteer for. And I just kept raising my hand. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. What is it? I'll do it. So I just became a person that would volunteer. So that's actually how I became a quality manager. They needed someone to be an internal auditor. I'm like, I don't know. That sounds good. I'll do it. I don't know what it is. I'll do it. And then they uh, needed someone to be a supply auditor. I'm like, I'll do that. So I kept volunteering for everything. And, and, what, and through that process, I learned everybody and everything in the business. So, and, you know, it's funny because on the ship, you start out in engineering and you earn your way to the front of the boat where, where the tactics are, where the operations are, the real running of the ship. But they keep you in the engineering engineering first. So you have to work your way to the front. Well, I felt that way in corporate. I started out in engineering, but I wanted to work my way to the front. So I knew I had to learn everything about this business. And I learned it from just volunteering and being involved. And it was interesting because the quality manager got advanced. And he moved up to a new position. And when they asked him who should be the next quality manager, they said, well, Rennie knows everything about the quality systems and procedure. And I, but one of the other things, we were qualified to make products for nuclear power plants. And I had memorized practically the quality systems procedure for nuclear manufacturing. And they're like, Rennie's the only one who knows it. And I'd have been in the company just a few years. And they were like, Rennie's the only one who knows it. And so I got the job to be quality manager because I knew more than anybody else. And you know, it's interesting. We think that our career, people are going to hand us our career and that someone's going to watch out for us and give us opportunities. And, and I, I believe that the only person in charge of your career is you, and you have to become invaluable in your company. You have to build a skill stack that's better than your peers if you want to have those opportunities to move up and, and get an opportunity to move to the next level. And, you know, it's funny because in most of my career, I didn't look for the next job. I was just given next opportunities. I just kept working hard. I did my job very, very well. And then I was given more and more opportunities and more and more responsibilities to the point where I spent most of my career as a vice president in you know, the three different companies I worked for. So, but it was not through trying to get there. You know, people say dress for success. I, I never dress for success. I put on a collared shirt for this, but I normally wear a t-shirt, boots, and jeans and boots. And, and I didn't dress for success. I just did what was required to be successful. And those things, you know, you got, I got opportunities because of the hard work and the performance of the teams that were around me. So, John, you are very unique and interesting to me. Not only have you been successful in your military career and also in the manufacturing space as well, but you also, as a leader put your thoughts out there. You are very active on social media, especially LinkedIn, and you've written three books, but I know one in particular you're very proud of. You have the watch. Tell us more about that. Yeah, my latest book is called You Have the Watch, and I got a lot of really good feedback from my first book, I Have the Watch, which you've read, in that someone, a lot of people said, this is like a daily reader. You know, you pick it up and you can read and it's like motivating you for the day. 
And the only problem is there's like 23 chapters in that book. So it's good daily reader for a month, but then what do you do next? And so that inspired me to the idea of, of this, this book called You Have the Watch, which is actually more of a guided journal. So it's there to be with you for an entire year. So there's 50 themes in the book, 50 major leadership themes in the book. And each day you explore a different facet of that theme. So it's something meant to be on your desk, you know, 15 minutes each day, you kind of read, reflect on yesterday, what you're going to do today. And it goes through an entire year with you. So it's meant to be with you for an entire year because, you know, leadership is not a one-time event. You can't just go to one-time training or or read one book and, and expect to be a great leader. So this is meant to be, you read, you actually practice it, and you reflect on it in this journal. So it's something that it's a little bit different from the standard book. It's more of a something that's meant to be with a leader and be and meant to be interactive as well. So I'm I'm really happy about it. I'm pretty excited about that getting out there to everybody. But then again, John, like you said, you know, you can go to read a book, listen to a podcast, go to a course, but leadership evolves over time. So you have provided the tool to be able to anchor that new knowledge and insight and hopefully grow from there. So really, really appreciate that. And amazing. I mean, we could go in so many directions. I mean, the failure story, the failure story early in your engineering where you blew up something and you had a great boss. I mean, just go there a little bit. Tell us about that failure and what was the positive experience that came from that? Because I think there's so many lessons for people to listen and understand from that. Yeah, I tell this story a lot. I speak to college graduate students a lot. And that's the story I always tell. And and it's a story of where I was a young engineer. We were designing a product that had never been done before. We were in an arms race, if you will, uh, with a competitor. So we were we were trying to be the first to the market with the safer version of, of a product. And it, like I said, never been done before. A lot of visibility in the organization. I was the lead mechanical engineer. So I was responsible for all the testing. I was responsible for all the mechanical design and testing. And a lot of eyes on me, a lot of pressure, a lot of money spent, a lot of visibility, not just within the company, but in the industry itself. And we went to the test lab first time and I was responsible for that test. And the first time we ran the test, we blew up this piece of equipment. It did nothing that it was supposed to do. It did just the opposite. It blew up into millions of pieces. There was melted metal and copper everywhere. And after the, it was clear, I went out to the test bay and I could smell the burning metal and the burning copper. And I thought, well, that's going to be my career. It's just gone up in smoke. And I knew I had to call my boss. And this is just one of those moments where you get to see what kind of boss you have. So I pick up the phone, I call my boss and I say, you know, we failed. He said, well, how bad? I said, terrible. I mean, everything just blown up. There's pieces everywhere. It's, there's nothing to recover. And he said, do you know what happened? And at that moment, I did know what happened. I said, yes. He said, can you fix it? I said, absolutely. And he said, well, get back there, get back here and let's do the redesign so we can get back to the lab as quick as we could. And that's what we did. We came back and was able, we were able to redesign and get up to the test lab. And we ended up being the first to the market with this new safer product design. We won all sorts of patents, all sorts of industry accolades, all sorts of monetary success for the company, you know, revenue, profits, you name it, international recognition. And it was all because that one boss had my back. You know, he could have fired me. He could have given the project to somebody else, but he had my back. And not only that is he probably suffered because of it, because of that setback. And he never once mentioned that to me. He probably, it hurt his reputation having failed this test, but yet he never exposed me to any of the pain he was feeling. He just encouraged me to get back to the lab and to finish that test. 
And what, what kind of respect do you think I had for that guy after that moment? If he asked me to run through a wall, I'd run through a wall. I'd do anything for him. And his name is Bill Book. He's still a friend today. And I would say that's the kind of boss that we need to be. We need to have our employees back, especially when they're doing something that's never been done before. You know, we're pushing the envelope of what's possible. And we have to recognize that when you have good, hardworking, honest, caring people that are doing their best and they come up short, we've got to have their backs. You know, we can't just throw them under the bus. And a lot of bosses will throw their employees under the bus when something bad happens to protect their career, to protect their name and their legacy and their paycheck and bonus check. But Bill did not do that. He protected me, gave me the space to finish the project, and we were immensely successful because of it. And because of moments like that, and him being memorable and allowing you to be the leader that you are and have become, you can now leave a legacy for other future leaders. So, John, this has been an amazing interview. Any last thoughts, tips, or ways for people to connect with you? Because I will tell you, my listeners, I so get John. John and I have had amazing conversations. We have a passion to evolve the future leaders so they don't have to struggle as much. And we got you back. So, John, any last words or things you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I was going to say this is like, if you are in a management position, someone felt that you had what it takes to lead people. And, and this is no small issue. This is no small trivial matter, right? You need to understand that you have the watch. Okay. And that's why I say that in the military, when we stood up there on the deck, we had the watch, we were responsible for the mission and the people. So if you're a manager, you are responsible for the people and the mission that you've been entrusted to. And, and I would say, don't take this lightly, right? Take it very seriously. And remember this, that, that leadership is a people business. It's all about the people. All the answers to all your problems reside in the minds of your, the, your team. But you got to ask them, you got to listen, and you got to engage them if you want those ideas to come out. John, and on that note, I will bring this interview to a close. You have been an amazing guest. I am grateful for the network of having introduced us. I just want to say thank you, and I do wish you continued success. Thank you, Deb. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.